This is the first episode of a series on the history of the Spanish Civil War. To the best of my abilities, I present an account of this history based off of selected texts written by reputable scholars, journalists, and active participants. There is no such thing as neutral history, but I've done my best to present the events fairly. For the ambitious, there is a vast public record available far beyond what I'm able to review within my own time constraints. However, all pronunciation errors are entirely my own, and I should be mercilessly mocked for it. With that, I present to you, if you tolerate this, the Spanish Civil War Part 1. Along the mountainous border between Spain and France lies the Pyrenees Mountains. From the peaks, snow melts and flows into the Ebro River. In 1938, a pair of men from the United States emerged from the frigid water onto the banks of the massive Ebro. Shivering, naked, and without sleep for three days, John Gates and George Watt crawled blindly through the woods of Spain, thousands of miles away from their home in New York. On this night, they found themselves fleeing for their lives in a nation whose language and culture were largely unknown to these two foreigners from the United States. Confused and isolated, nude but too focused on survival to feel any shame, they moved as quickly and quietly as possible under cloak of darkness, not knowing if their comrades were alive or dead, drowned trying to cross the wild river, or captured and soon to be shot by their enemies. The coalition of monarchists, nationalists, and fascists led by Generalissimo Francisco Franco. It's been two years since the fighting began in 1936. The Spanish Civil War began three years before the German invasion of Poland that officially began the European theater of World War II, and two years before Hitler's Anschluss, the seizure and annexation of Austria and Czechoslovakia. For three years, the first full-scale war against fascism was fought in Spain and around its coast. After failed attempts at political solutions, generations of political and religious and social crises came to a head as a shaky coalition of communists, socialists, anarchists, and liberals won a democratic election to lead the Second Spanish Republic. Military officers launched a violent rebellion with the aid of landowners, monarchists, and the Catholic Church. Unable to destroy the Republicans, as the divided allies called themselves, the self-described nationalists, a much more cohesive coalition, sought aid from their natural anti-communist and anti-liberal allies, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. The Spanish Civil War riveted the world for three brutal years. Neutrality became impossible. Massacres, terror bombing, mechanized warfare, anti-Semitism, uneasy alliances between communists, social democrats, and liberals all previewed in gruesome detail what was to come on a far greater scale for the world. 
It's impossible to know whether the European war could have been avoided had the fascists been defeated in Spain. But at the very least, the scale of extermination and other horrors could have been vastly reduced, if not prevented, had the major powers of Europe and North America intervened. On April 4, 1938, two years into the war, Gates and Watt were retreating with a small group of foreign volunteer fighters. Encircled during a nationalist offensive with Nazi and Italian aircraft overhead and tanks behind them, these groups of fleeing anti-fascist fighters evaded their pursuers for three days before reaching their goal, the Ebro River, the largest in Spain, the other side of which lay Republican territory. But the bridge has been blown, and many fighters do not know how to swim, including some wounded, several drown. On the other side, ignorant as to whether any other comrades survived, John Gates helps Watt keep moving through the rugged terrain, their bare feet stabbed and scratched by stones and burrs. Watts's sprained ankle and shrapnel add to their troubles. Upon reaching the highway, they are welcomed by the sight of a truck, which stops immediately at the sight of the two men. They provide Gates and Watt with blankets and introduce themselves. New York Times correspondent Herbert L. Matthews and a young journalist and author covering the war for the North American Newspaper Alliance, Ernest Hemingway. While the two men comfort themselves under blankets by the roadside, they told their tale. As Watts recalls, quote, There are hundreds of men still across the Ebro. Many are dead, some are drowned. How many captured? We have no idea. Matthews is busy taking notes. Hemingway is busy cursing the fascists. Facing the other side of the river, Hemingway shook his burly fist. You fascist bastards haven't won yet. We'll show you. Unquote. The only countries that would support the Spanish Republic on any significant scale were Mexico and the Soviet Union, the latter in the throes of Joseph Stalin's purges of old Bolsheviks and potential rivals, dividing and eventually killing leftists worldwide. Once the beacon of hope for revolutionaries worldwide, the Soviet Union was in the process of dismantling the remains of its internal party democracy and devolving into a bureaucratic, paranoid socialist state. However, while other countries, including the United States, France, and Britain, would complain but stand idle as the Nazis and fascists invaded Spain, volunteers traveled from all over the world, from Canadians to Germans to Chinese, organized by the communist parties of the world, fighting with weapons and ammunition, provided by the Soviet Union. The membership of these volunteers crossed class and ethnic lines. Among the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, working class and Ivy League fought alongside white Southern boys and black men from all corners of the United States. Between a third to half of the membership were Jews. Among the German and Italian volunteers, refugees and exiles, escaped from Hitler and Mussolini's brown and black shirt paramilitaries, Jews, communists, dissidents. These fighters volunteered to fight fascism, while their countries ignored 
or even provided indirect aid to the nationalist and fascist war effort. However, the bulk of the fighting on the Republican side was done by Spaniards themselves, encompassing the loyalist factions of the military as well as militias belonging to other factions, including that of the anarchists and the anti-Stalinist Workers' Party of Marxist Unification, the PUM. Spain in 1936 was an underdeveloped and largely agrarian rural society, divided along many class and economic lines. The vast majority of the population worked in agriculture with outdated methods and equipment, leaving much of the land uncultivated and owned by large landowners. Historian Pierre Bruet writes, quote, 50,000 rural Hidalgos owned half the land, and 10,000 other landowners possessed more than 100 hectares each, so that more than 2 million agricultural workers depended for their survival on labor on the great latifundios, just as 1.5 million small landowners had to survive by exploiting tiny plots of land. With its 11,000 estates, the Spanish church was among the leading landowners in the country, Furthermore, it almost totally dominated the education system of the country with religious schools that had educated more than 5 million adults and whose administrative staffs reflected the most resolutely reactionary and oligarchic perspectives. Its leader, Cardinal Segura, Archbishop of Toledo, had an annual income of 600,000 pesetas, as opposed to the average of 161 pesetas for the average owner of a small plot of land in Andalusia. He was, in the words of a Spanish historian, a churchman from the 13th century for whom bathing was not an invention of the pagans, but of the devil himself, unquote. While the early 20th century spurred some industrialization, Development was limited to specific regions, as Catalonia and the Basque Country, to the west and north, respectively. The capitalist class of Spain remained mostly agricultural, with most industrial and banking capital controlled and owned by foreign companies. The political culture in these industrialized regions took a separatist nature, due to the power relationship between the majority Castilian Spanish and the minority ethnic groups that inhabited these regions. These conditions created a whirlwind of separatist, anti-capitalist, and anti-Catholic sentiment and instability. The monarchy, weak and fearful of these forces, supported a military regime during the 1920s that launched a campaign of violence and political repression targeted towards leftists, censoring newspapers, firing government officials, and allowing foreign capital to invest freely while ignoring labor law. The world economic crisis weakened the dictatorship at the end of the decade, pushing King Alfonso to end the dictatorship of Primo de Rivera in hopes of saving the monarchy. However, the king had by now lost support from the emerging middle classes, forcing the abdication of Alfonso XIII in 1931. Following the establishment of the Second Spanish Republic, two monarchist factions competed for legitimacy and a restoration of the throne according to their claims, the Alfonsists and the Carlists. 
The monarchists would take a back seat in the upcoming civil war, falling in line behind the coup leaders alongside other members of the right-wing coalition. This included the Confederación Española de Derechas Autónomas, or the SEDA, a right-wing Catholic political party and major electoral rival to the left, as well as the fascist Falange Española, the Spanish phalanx, who would begin the Spanish Civil War as a small fringe party, but end as the sole legal political entity in Spain, merged under Franco with other right-wing political parties and monarchists. On the Republican side, the Popular Front consisted of an uneasy alliance spanning moderate liberals to revolutionaries. The largest faction was the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, Partido Socialista Obrero Español, a social democratic socialist party and the major electoral force on the center-left. In addition to the liberal Republican parties and small Galician and Catalan parties, the Republican government was supported by the Communist Party, the Partido Comunista de España, a member party of the Communist International by this point under control of Stalinists and the followers of the Soviet Union. The aforementioned PUM were an anti-Stalinist Marxist revolutionary party and reluctantly offered their support to the Popular Front for the sake of anti-fascism, which would not save them from ongoing accusations of treachery from paranoid Stalinists. At the same time, anarchism flourished among the Spanish peasants and proletarians, a rare exception to the decline of anarchist movements in Europe after World War I. Unlike the revolutionary movement inspired by Marxism, anarchists rejected the idea of seizing the state in order to implement a socialist revolution on the road to communism. Rather, the anarchists believe in seizing workplaces, factories, fields, and direct control of peasants and the industrial proletariat over production without a state the Spanish working class took to various tendencies within the revolutionary movement, with the anarcho-syndicalists becoming the most relevant among the anarchists, despite being the target of various assassination campaigns led by the police. Despite decades of violent repression, the Confederación Nacional de Trabajo and the Federación Anarquista Ibérica would form one of the most successful and important anarchist federations in history, the CNT Fi. Several episodes previewed the coming civil war during the short life of the Republic before the Nationalist Uprising. In 1934, a miners' strike broke out in response to the entry of the SEDA, the major right-wing party, into the government. The general strike was supported by the anarchists and the communists, growing into a revolutionary movement involving seizures of weapons depots, occupations, and short-lived revolutionary committees under worker control. The revolution failed quickly, smashed hard by a military operation under the command of Francisco Franco, a competent, young, and fiercely nationalistic general. By the end of the fighting, 3,000 miners were dead, along with tens of thousands in the captivity. A couple hundred military and police were killed by the miners and their allies. Rape, torture, and executions were utilized by Franco's forces against the combatants and civilians, under the justification that Spain was under threat from a Judeo 
Bolshevik conspiracy. The Republic itself proclaimed a respect for property rights. Although it was open to limited expropriation of property for public good, assuming compensation was provided to the capitalist who was losing said property. A far cry from the revolutionary dream of seizing property from landlords and factories from factory owners for the peasants and workers, the Republican government sought the establishment of a modern liberal democracy maintaining the capitalist social relations, social relations between those who owned the means of production and those who were forced to rent themselves and sell their labor to capital. The Republic both clashed violently with revolutionaries, as was the case in 1933 when Republican civil guards burned 30 anarchists alive as they sought refuge in a building, as well as depended on their leftist militants to prevent right-wing plays for power, as was the case in 1932 when a military coup was thwarted in part by a CNT general strike. Bolshevism was the specter feared by anti-communists, a paranoid that it would manifest itself in the right wing as anti-Semitic fantasy, imagining all workers' organizations, peasant movements, and liberal reformers as part of a worldwide Jewish conspiracy based in Moscow. Liberals and social democrats, for their part, wanted nothing to do with social revolution. During periods of unrest, anti-clerical violence became a defining feature of the Spanish radicals. Property destruction of churches and occasional executions of Catholic priests occurred, frightening the Spanish church, already nervous about losing its control of education and social norms in 1930s Spain. The Spanish church supported anti-communist politics and perpetuated anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. A curious theory, given that Jews had virtually disappeared from Spain since their expulsion in 1492. After the failed miners' uprising of 1934, the conservative government formed earlier that year arrested former Prime Minister and Republican leader Manuel Lasagna for plotting the uprising. After his release and the collapse of the case against him, the gap between the moderate and radical parties narrowed, leading to the formation of an electoral alliance. On February 16th, El Frente Popular, or the Popular Front, narrowly won the 1936 elections. Bruet writes, quote, From the moment that Azania took office, the tide of history once again seems to have rolled back. On February 22nd, all the political prisoners were amnestied. On February 23rd, rent payments in Andalusia and Estremadura were abolished as a guarantee that the pace of agrarian reform would be accelerated. The Basque municipal councils that had been suspended in 1934 were reinstated. Two generals suspected of participating in conspiracy were dispatched to commands far from the capital. Franco was sent to the Canary Islands and Godet to the Balearic Islands. On April 4th, Azania presented his legislative program to the Cortes. It called for the precise enactment of the electoral program of the Popular Front, a renewed and serious agrarian reform 
massive investments in the construction of schools, more independence for municipal governments, a statute of autonomy for the Basque provinces, and the rehiring of all the workers who had been fired for political and trade union-related reasons since 1933. He solemnly reaffirmed that he would not nationalize the land, banking, or industry. He promised the right-wing parties that he would postpone the municipal elections, and he asked the right-wing and left-wing parties to play the parliamentary game and to allow his reform program to be implemented legally. Unquote. Even before the elections, suspicions that the military might attempt to topple the republic permeated the fears of the coalition, for whom anti-fascism was the common platform. In fact, monarchists had met in secret with Mussolini's agents two years prior in order to extract a promise of Italian arms and support for an eventual takeover. But the coup would not come from Carlists or Alphonsists. Generals plotted a military coup to overthrow the government, wipe out communists, and impose an authoritarian, rigid, traditionalist political system. A Republican precaution, reassigning suspected generals to outposts far away from the mainland, backfired and made collusion easier, now further away from the eyes of the Republic. In April, the official leader of the coup, Jose Sanjurjo, met with Nazi leaders in Germany, while other generals, including Emilio Mola and Franco, secured contacts, alliances, and a general agreement among key leaders to support Sanjurjo. On July 17th, a telegram was received in London from a press bureau in Madrid that read, Mother's everlastingly lingering illness, likely laryngitis. Aunt Flora ought to return, even if goes north, later equally good, if only night. The message continued incoherently, implying a code. The first letters of each word revealed the message. Melia Foreign Legion revolted, martial law declared. The nationalist coup had begun with a rebellion in the Spanish colony in Morocco, and would quickly spread throughout mainland Spain. This carefully orchestrated coup, far more complex than any past, commanded across continents and the sea tens of thousands of army troops. Utilizing secret networks of messengers, the coup leaders had successfully plotted a timed, precise operation with the loyalty of hundreds of army officers. Their code word, Covadonga inspired by the 8th century battle that began the reconquest of Spain from Muslims. They called themselves Nacionales, whose Spanish connotation implied the only true Spaniards. Veterans of the Northern African Wars against Berbers also called themselves Africanistas, many of whom had grown up in the colonies and spent most of their life maintaining Spanish colonial order in Morocco. The bulk of the African army were Arab or Berber, Moros as they were called by the Spanish. The northern African soldiers were utilized by the so-called true Spaniards as a means of racialized terror, encouraging their troops to commit rapes and using anti-Semitic propaganda to convince Muslim fighters that they were fighting a holy war against non-believers and Jews. Franco was flown from the Canary Islands to Spanish Morocco to take command of the Army of Africa, 
and to sail to the peninsula. Many Spanish navy crews refused to take part in the rebellion and mutinied against their officers. Forty thousand of their best forces now stuck in Africa. Franco required air assistance to make the crossing and join the mainland rebels. Adam Hochschild writes, quote, Franco promptly dispatched envoys to the two European leaders he was confident would help, Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler. The emissaries to Germany were received just after Hitler had attended a performance of Wagner's Siegfried at the Opera Festival in Bayreuth. The Führer was wearing his brown stormtrooper's uniform. The rest of his entourage, in evening dress, were kept waiting for their supper while he met with Franco's representatives. They gave him a handwritten letter and map from the general. After several hours' talk, much of it a monologue from Hitler, who was still annoyed that Spain had stayed neutral in the First World War, the dictator agreed to supply whatever Franco needed. He then summoned Air Marshal Hermann Göring and ordered him to send more planes than Franco had asked for. Unquote. Along with the bombers and transports provided by Mussolini, German and Italian planes airlifted 15,000 troops from Spanish Morocco into Seville in what was history's first major military airlift. Contacts between the now rebels and the major fascist powers were developed years before the July uprising. Franco had befriended Hitler's military intelligence chief, the Spanish-speaking Wilhelm Canaris, while touring the German military sites. Father Juan Tusquets toured Dachau in 1933 to educate himself on methods of social control. The author and Catalan priest helped to popularize the anti-Semitic forged document, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, citing it as a legitimate historical document in his attacks on suspected Jews and Freemasons. The Republic's initial response was to declare the rebellion failed and restricted to North Africa. Socialist labor leader Largo Caballero demanded that the Republic distribute arms to workers throughout Spain in order to resist the rebellion, a suggestion that frightened the conservative wing of the Popular Front, fearful that armed workers would once again seize property and launch a revolutionary process. Workers and militants were instructed by the socialists and communists to trust the government response. Distrustful, the major labor organs, the Workers' General Union, the UGT, and the anarchist CNT, declared a general strike, taking to the streets to demand arms. The government collapsed, and after a short-lived attempt at forming a centrist government, a left-wing government was formed with José Giral at the head, who finally approved the distribution of arms. The distrust of the working class had already done its damage, however. In Madrid, 65,000 rifles were distributed, 60,000 of which lacked bolts. Fearing the possibility of a worker uprising, the bolts were moved to a separate location, which was now in nationalist hands. In reality, the rebellion was larger than the government had acknowledged. The majority of the officers threw their lot in with the nationalists, leaving the Republic with loyalist soldiers and poorly armed militias. The nationalists performed best in territories where the local labor organizations and militias obeyed government instructions and failed to act independently. Bruet writes, 
In almost all of Andalusia, the pronunciamento was victorious and proceeded in accordance with an almost uniform pattern. The government and the authorities vouched for the loyalty of the army, and the workers were persuaded not to demand the arms that should be distributed to them. Taken by surprise, they were then defeated after bitter but improvised resistance. This is what took place in Cadiz, Algeciras, Cordoba, Granada, where the fighting in the working-class neighborhoods lasted until July 24th. In Seville, General Cuaipo de Llano won a dramatic victory by seizing the radio station with a detachment of civil guards and broadcasting radio announcements claiming that he had a large body of troops. The workers' leaders, socialists, communists, and anarchists allowed themselves to be deceived while the first Moroccan troops arrived by airlift, and the armed resistance of the workers commenced too late. The working-class district of Triana held out for an entire week before being cleansed in a veritable slaughterhouse of hand-to-hand fighting that claimed 20,000 victims. Only one major city in Andalusia, Malaga, remained in the hands of the workers. Because the military had launched the coup on July 17th, the workers had a breathing space before the assault. They used this opportunity to take action in response. A CNT-UGT defense committee assumed command over operations. The houses surrounding the barracks were set on fire, and the soldiers, faced with the threat of being burned to death in their quarters, preferred to surrender. Unquote. The Nationalists won an unexpected victory in Zaragoza, a mass of base support for the CNT, whose leaders trusted the government and local heads. After a surprise arrest of CNT members on the 19th, the militants called for a general strike. The resistance came too late, and 30,000 workers would be defeated with barely any resistance. Contrast this with Barcelona where militants disobeyed the local authorities and began to seize arms and explosives from whenever they could on the afternoon of the 18th. When the local army began their part of the coup later that night, soldiers were welcomed by crowds of armed workers backed by a section of the civil guards and the air force. Within two days of fighting, local nationals commander General Godet surrendered. Militia fighters from the PUM and the CNT-5 Duruti column took place in the assault before marching out to fight nationalists elsewhere. In Madrid, leftist militants had already began patrolling the streets with what arms they had before any army activity had even begun. General Fanjul found his army surrounded by workers who had encircled the barracks and ordered machine gun fire into the crowds. Despite the lack of functioning arms, the workers, backed by loyalist air power, attacked the army barracks. Fanghul surrendered on the 20th. Within a few days, it was clear that the coup had stalled, with no major cities in nationalist hands except Seville. The Republic held just over half the land and population, including all the major cities. Bruet writes, quote, By the night of July 20th, with a few exceptions, the situation was clear. Either the military was victorious and the workers and peasants' organizations were outlawed, their militants imprisoned or dead, and the working-class population was subjected to the most implacable white terror, or else the military uprisings failed, and the authorities of the Republican state were swept away by the workers who went into combat under leadership of their organizations which formed committees 
that, with the consent and support of the armed workers, exercised all power and devoted their efforts to the transformation of society. The initiative of the counter-revolution had unleashed the revolution. With the lines drawn and the realization that the final settlement would only come after more bloodshed, each side began to implement their vision for the future and their respective te territory. With the lines drawn and the realization that the final settlement would only come after more bloodshed, each side began to implement their vision for the future and their respective territory. Systematic terror and extermination were key components to the plans of the true Spaniards. A simple takeover of power was insufficient. Spain required limpieza in the form of firing squads and mass killings. Trade union officials, parliamentary deputies, officers loyal to the government at the highest levels were shot or bayoneted to death. Liberals and leftist newspapers were shut down and popular front voters were murdered. One socialist deputy, a diabetic, was force-fed to death with sugar. Right-wing Portugal handed over Republican refugees to be shot by the nationalists. 8,000 right-wing Portuguese volunteers joined Franco's foreign legion, bringing with them supplies and ammunition. Africanista General Emilio Mola the de facto leader of the military coup during this stage, described the thinking behind the violence. Quote, It is necessary to spread terror. We have to create the impression of mastery by eliminating without scruples or hesitation all those who do not think as we do. Anyone who helps or hides a communist or a supporter of the popular front will be shot. Unquote. The killing targeted apolitical sectors of society as well. Vegetarians, teachers at Montessori schools, even attending lectures on evolution was considered grounds for suspicion and execution. Friends and acquaintances of the condemned were immediately subject to arrest, investigation, and met similar fates. The nationalists adopt rape as policy, in particular encouraging conscripts from North African colonies to commit gang rapes and murders of Republican women and those suspected of being communists or labor organizers. Racist fear of the Moors, more accurately North Africans of various ethnicities including Berbers and Arabs, was common among Spaniards of all political leanings. However, the nationalists capitalized on this racist fear utilizing thousands of Moroccan regulares as shock troops, then handing over women to be raped. Hawkshield writes, quote, To know monks of the British Daily Express, nationalist soldiers bragged of what they'd done with women they captured. But they weren't atrocities, oh no, senor. Not even the locking up of a captured militia girl in a room with twenty moors. No, senor. That was fun. Unquote. Hochschild quotes a journalist from the Herald Tribune who witnessed the practice himself. Quote, the wisdom of this policy was debated by Spanish officers in a half dozen messes where I ate with them, wrote Whitaker. No officer ever denied that it was a Franco policy, but some argued that even a red woman was Spanish and a woman. Such reasoning did not prevail. Advancing nationalist troops scrawled on walls. Your women will give birth to fascists. Unquote. 
Social control and violence against women would become a defining characteristic of the one true Spain. Women were banned from wearing pants and required to cover limbs. Education, recently secularized by the Republic, was handed back to the church. Coeducation was banned, and education for girls emphasized religion and domestic skills. In Toledo, 20 pregnant women were removed from maternity wards and shot for suspected Republican sympathy. Executions and atrocities were fairly common in the Republican zones as well, and attempts to save condemned lives were made on both sides of the war, though not always successful. The usual targets for political killings in the Republican territories were landlords, factory owners, clergy, businessmen, known fascists, and eventually those suspected of informing for the nationalists. Typically, those known for cruelty towards the poor and working class were killed, though much of the killing occurred as a result of revolutionary class warfare, particularly on the part of the anarchists. The killing was decentralized and took on a very personal form. As news of atrocities and terror bombings spread, reprisal killings of captured nationalists taken out of jail cells and shot became common. The majority of the 50,000 estimated executions occurred during the first four months, before the Republican authorities were able to establish more control over matters on their side of the country. However, the major difference between the political killings on each side was stark. Hochschild writes, Quote, a far larger number of people were murdered in nationalist-controlled Spain, some 150,000 with at least 20,000 more executed after the war. But in a European and American press dominated by conservative media barons, the Hearst newspaper chain, for example, enthusiastically backed Franco. It was the killings in the Republic, especially of the clergy that was splashed across front pages, by the end of 1936, the Republican government largely brought such deaths to a halt, but they had done great damage to its chances of getting help from abroad. Unquote. Worldwide reaction to the events in Spain said as much about the political situation for the audience as much as it did about the participants. Several years into the worldwide Great Depression, Liberalism struggled while many nations moved towards fascistic, right-wing responses to the economic turmoil of the era. Most notably, Nazi Germany and the admirers of Hitler worldwide. Fascism had emerged in earnest shortly after the conclusion of World War I as a political movement founded by former socialist-turned-nationalist Benito Mussolini, borrowing anti-capitalist jargon and fervor while adopting a rabidly anti-communist ultranationalist bent. Within a decade, Italian fascism would inspire mass movements of disgruntled middle and working class masses, financed and backed by anti-communist business interests, eventually adopting racist, anti-Semitic, and eugenicist themes. Among these admirers were politicians, newspaper barons, industrialists, and the oilmen of the United States. As in Germany, they saw all working-class movements as agents of Soviet communism. The United States had already experienced one major Red Scare in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, deporting thousands of immigrants and arresting thousands more natural-born dissidents. 
fearing loss of property, and the wrath of an increasingly organized working class, fascism provided a simple solution for the rich and propertied men of America and worldwide. The failure of the Spanish coup meant that Franco required Nazi and Italian air support, and even ground forces in order to overcome popular resistance and eventually unify the island under right-wing authoritarian rule. However, neither Spain nor Italy nor the Germans had easy access to the quantities of oil required to sustain regular air campaigns, which would become a staple of the nationalist war effort. Germany already imported two-thirds of its domestic consumption. Purchasing the oil required to defeat the Republic would cost a fortune to all three countries. Luckily for them, the American oil company Texaco would come to the aid of Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco. Torkild Rieber was born in Norway before emigrating to the United States, where he would work his way up from a rugged deckhand, sailing around the world to the chairmanship of Texaco Oil Company. He was appointed by the company's founder, who proudly flew a black skull and crossbones flag at the company's headquarters. According to Adam Hochschild, Texaco's reputation was that of a cutthroat corporation loathed by even other cutthroat companies. Quoting a Shell executive, quote, If I were dying at a Texaco filling station, I'd ask to be dragged across the road. Unquote. Reber made a name for himself in the oil business, cutting deals with ruffians across the world, often under legally dubious circumstances. His lack of concern for the fatalities that occurred at his drill sites earned him the nickname Lichenfanger, the scavenger of corpses. Naturally, he gravitated towards right-wing strongmen and became an admirer of Adolf Hitler, though he would later claim his interest was purely financial. Hochschild quotes a friend of Reber, quote, he always thought it was better to deal with autocrats than democracies. He said, with an autocrat, you really only have to bribe him once. With democracies, you have to keep doing it over and over again. Unquote. At the outbreak of the war, Reber canceled agreements with the Republic and decided that Texaco would conduct business with nationalist Spain. The nationalists warned Reber that they lacked both tankers to move the oil as well as hard currency on hand to buy. Reber responded with the four-word telegram, Don't worry about payments. Texaco would provide oil on a virtually endless credit line. The world powers officially agreed to a non-interference pact in Spain, which the Germans and Italians immediately violated. Supporters of the Spanish Republic hoped that the American president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, would decide to aid the Republic in order to balance the support of the Italians and Nazis. However, FDR remained neutral throughout the war and feared any action deemed supportive of the Republic would cost his Catholic support. By early 1937, Congress would overwhelmingly pass a resolution clarifying the ban on arms sales to include civil wars, cutting off Spain from yet another possible supply of arms. Before the vote, John T. Bernard of Minnesota used every procedure available to delay the vote, 
until one last ship of supplies reached territorial waters. Curiously enough, certain commodities were not banned from sale. Oil among them. Shell, Socony, Atlantic Refining, and Standard Oil would all sell oil to the nationalists, though Texaco remained the major supplier. American Capital would also provide 12,000 trucks to the nationalists, including from General Motors, Studebaker, and Ford. Technically, American ships were banned from transporting these purchases. This ban was easily circumvented by flying foreign flags or falsifying manifests for destination outside of Spain. For the duration of the Civil War, not a word about American aid to the Nationalists would be published by the New York Times or any major American newspaper, despite much of the practice being known by journalists, including Times correspondent William P. Carney. Some of Texaco's most crucial and pernicious aid would not become public for some decades later. Hochschild writes, quote, Commanders directing the bombers, surface ships, and attack submarines of Franco and his German and Italian allies were always well informed. Tankers carrying oil to the Republic were one of their prime targets. During the war, at least 29 of them were attacked, damaged, sunk, or captured. The risk was so high that in the summer of 1937, insurance rates for tankers in the Mediterranean abruptly quadrupled. Nationalists had the aid of an international maritime intelligence network. It belonged to Texaco. The oil company had offices, installations, and sales or purchasing agents across the world. Quietly, thanks to Reber, orders went out to them. From port cities came cables to the Texaco office in Paris, providing information about oil tankers headed for the Republic. Texaco, an American corporation based in the neutral United States, was acting as an intelligence service, providing targets for nationalists, Italian, and Nazi bombers targeting Republican ships. Along with cheap oil from the Americans, and air power and ground armor from the Germans and Italians, the nationalists were now poised to launch a long and brutal and sustained campaign against the Republic. Despite the valiant defenses by the leftist militias, the failed coup was not the end of the conflict, which would rage for another three harrowing years. The Movements is a left-wing history podcast. Music by Rolando Alcaron and the Weavers. Find me on movements.buzzsprout.com. Please email questions and good faith criticisms to movementspod at gmail.com and movementspod on Facebook and Twitter. Primera línea de fuego